This is the Bible in One Year Express, day 26. Why does God allow suffering? A one-year-old boy shattered his back, falling down a flight of stairs. He spent his childhood and youth in and out of hospital. Gavin Reed, the former Bishop of Mason, interviewed him in church. The boy remarked, God is fair. Gavin asked, How old are you? Seventeen, the boy replied. How many years have you spent in hospital? The boy answered, Thirteen years. Gavin asked, Do you think that is fair? He replied, God has got all of eternity to make it up to me. We live in a world of instant gratification that has almost entirely lost its eternal perspective. The New Testament is full of wonderful promises about the future. All creation will be restored. Jesus will return to establish a new heaven and a new earth. There will be no more crying. There will be no more pain and suffering. Our frail, decaying mortal bodies will be changed for a body like that of Jesus' glorious resurrected body. Suffering is not part of God's original created order. There was no suffering in the world before rebellion against God. There will be no suffering when God creates a new heaven and a new earth. Suffering is therefore an alien intrusion into God's world. This, of course, is not a complete answer to the question, why does God allow suffering? As we saw yesterday, there is no simple or complete solution. But each of today's passages gives us some further insight. From Psalm 16 Keep me safe, my God, for in you I take refuge, because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful one see decay. You make known to me the path of life, You fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. See the suffering of this life in the context of eternity. Today's psalm is one of the few Old Testament passages that foresees the hope of eternity in the presence of God. David writes, Because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You've made known to me the path of life, You fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. This is our future hope. These verses show that the resurrection of Jesus was foretold in the scriptures. This life is not the end. You can look forward to an eternity in the presence of God, to fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. Our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Lord, thank you that I can, in Christ, look forward to a resurrected body and an eternity in the presence of God, where there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. New Testament from Matthew 18 What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, Truly, I tell you, he is happier about that one sheep than about the ninety-nine that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. If they will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. 
and if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him ten thousand bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I'll pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, cancelled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants, who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell on his knees and begged him, Be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I cancelled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Understand the relationship between human freedom and suffering. God loves you. Love is not love if it's forced. It can only be love if there's a real choice. God gave human beings a choice and the freedom to love or not to love. So much suffering is caused by us choosing not to love God or others. The sorrows of those will increase who run after other gods. However, Jesus expressly rejects the automatic link between sin and suffering. He also points out that natural disasters are not necessarily a form of punishment from God, but some suffering is a direct result either of our own sin or the sin of others. In this passage, we see three examples. First, wandering away. Jesus speaks about a sheep that wanders away. When we wander away from the protection of the shepherd, we become vulnerable. But God will never stop searching for us because he is not willing that any of these little ones should be lost. Second, sin of others. Jesus said, if your brother or sister sins against you, so much suffering in the world is the result of other people's sin both at a global and community level. 
and also at an individual one. In this passage, Jesus sets out a way of reconciliation. He calls his disciples to unlimited forgiveness. Jesus says that when people sin against us, we are to forgive them, not just seven times, but 77 times. Forgiveness is not easy. The cross reminds us how costly and painful it is. Forgiveness does not mean approving of what the other person did, nor excusing it, nor denying it, nor pretending that you're not hurt. Rather, you are aware of what the other person has done, and yet you're called to forgive. In your personal relationships, lay aside all malice, revenge and retribution, and show mercy and grace to the person who's hurt you. Third, unforgiveness. Sometimes forgiving can be extremely hard. As C.S. Lewis wrote, everyone thinks forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive. In the final parable, we see the destructive nature of unforgiveness. The first servant's unwillingness to forgive a comparatively minor debt around three and a half months' wages compared to around 160,000 years' wages for an average person destroys his relationship with the other servants and leads to the second servant being cast into prison. So often, unforgiveness destroys relationships between people and results in them lashing out against those they think have sinned against them. We see the results of this in marriage breakdowns, broken relationships, or in conflicts between different communities. We do not earn our forgiveness. Jesus achieved that for you on the cross. But your willingness to forgive is evidence that you know God's forgiveness. Forgiven people forgive. All of us have been forgiven so much by God that we must keep on forgiving the comparatively small offences committed against us. I am so thankful that God does not put a limit on how often he forgives me. But when I look at others, I'm tempted to think, I'm happy to forgive once or even twice. But if they keep on doing this, surely I'm not expected to keep on forgiving. Cultivate in your heart the same attitude towards others as God has towards you. Lord, help me to use my freedom to love, to search for the lost, and to have mercy. Help me not to cause suffering, but rather to give my life following the example of Jesus for the relief of suffering. From Job 1-3 to In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. One day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, From roaming through the earth, going to and fro on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There's no one on earth like him. He's blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. 
Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he'll surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well then, everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the eldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were ploughing and the donkeys were grazing nearby and the Sabaeans attacked and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword and I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The fire of God fell from the heavens and burned up the sheep and the servants and I'm the only one who's escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and made off with them. They put the servants to the swords, and I'm the only one left who's escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the eldest brother's house, when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them, and they're dead, and I'm the only one who's escaped to tell you. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came into my mother's womb, and naked I shall depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. When Job's three friends, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Nehemathite, heard about all the troubles that had come upon him, they set out to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him, because they saw how great his suffering was. Always respond to suffering with compassion. The book of Job is all about suffering. It is primarily about the question, how should we respond to suffering? Perhaps we also see a hint about the origin of suffering. When the angels assembled before God, Satan also came with them. He'd been roaming through the earth. It is clear that Satan's objective is to cause as much suffering as he can. It appears that Satan was a fallen angel. It seems that before God created human beings, he created other free, imaginative and intelligent beings and that there was a rebellion within the spiritual realm before human beings even emerged. A great deal of suffering can be explained as a result of the fact that we live in a fallen world, a world where all creation has been affected, not only by the sin of human beings, but also before that, by Satan's sin. The serpent existed before Adam and Eve sinned. As a result of Adam and Eve's sin, thorns and thistles entered the world. Ever since that time, the creation has been subjected to frustration. Natural disasters, such as global pandemics, are a result of this disorder in creation. Satan was allowed to bring several major tragedies into the life of a man who was blameless and upright, who feared God and shunned evil. Job suffered loss in the areas of money, material possessions, family life, personal health, and eventually the support of his friends. When we face unexplained suffering, it can be very easy to blame God. 
Although Job did not know why he was suffering, he responded by continuing to trust and worship God in his pain, just as he had in his good fortune. The writer tells us admiringly, In all this, Job did not sin in what he said. He remained faithful in the most difficult of circumstances. Initially, Job's friends responded in the right way. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. In the face of great suffering, attempts to rationalize can be counterproductive. Usually the most positive thing you can do is to put an arm round the person and mourn with those who mourn, entering their suffering and participating as far as you are able. In the end, God restored Job's fortune and gave him twice as much as he had before. Now we know that through Jesus, God has all eternity to more than compensate for all your sufferings in this life. Lord, when I see suffering, help me to show compassion and weep with those who weep. Pepper adds, In Psalm 16 verse 7 it says, Even at night my heart instructs me. A lot of things come to mind in the middle of the night, often worries. In turning them into prayer, God can speak to us and instruct us, and our bodies can rest secure.